having been found guilty of a capital offense. Moments before his execution sentence was carried out, the brave soul stood against his condemners and declared, I am so satisfied with the cause in which I have engaged that my only regret is that I have not more lives than one to offer in its service. On the 22nd of September, 1776, charged with treason against the British crown, American rebel and spy Nathan Hale was hanged by the neck until he died. His last words, which I just quoted to you, come from a Boston Chronicle report published six years post-execution. Almost always, though, Hale's last words are remembered as a succinct, though fundamentally different, paraphrase. I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. It seems rare to find someone so devoted to their cause that he or she is willing to sacrifice life itself in its service. And yet, in his address prior to D-Day's Operation Overlord, General George Patton, unforgettably portrayed by the actor George C. Scott in the 1970 film Patton, told his soldiers that, Wars aren't won by dying for your country. They're won by making the other poor bastard die for his. Patton understood that a cause will go nowhere if all of its supporters get themselves killed. Just like the rebel cause of independence for which Nathan Hale died would have been extinguished if every supporter of it had been executed or killed in battle, regardless of how bravely they would have met their ends. At the same time, however, unless they all were prepared and willing to make that sacrifice, should it be required, the cause would not have succeeded. Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. My name is Ben Laboot, and today's episode considers sacrifices, specifically those of the martyrs. I suppose that, for most people, If palm branches and Christianity have any association, then it is most likely Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter that remembers the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, when crowds line the streets and wave palm branches in celebration. But did you know that palm branches have another meaning to the church? Take a look at a traditional representation of a saint, whether in the fresco of a Renaissance master or in the stained glass of a cathedral. If you pay close attention to this and other artwork, you will find that many saints are depicted holding a palm branch. These individuals are martyrs. They are the people who underwent martyrdom. In short, they died for their beliefs in God and Jesus. For that, martyrs are persecuted and killed. The word martyr, by the way, is the Greek word for witness, like a courtroom witness or one who testifies because a martyr indeed stands witness for God. But how are these people connected to palm branches? Well, that symbolism is an extrapolation of a far older meaning of palm branches, triumph and victory, just like the palm branches that were raised when Jesus had his triumph as he entered Jerusalem. Martyrs, we believe, people who have died for their faith, are triumphant, victorious in overcoming the temptations of apostasy, denial of Jesus as Lord and Savior, 
and having more fear of people than hope in God. They withstand to the point of death, usually enduring horrendous hardships and gruesome tortures, but stand against it nonetheless and proclaim their convictions, keep their faith, finish the race with strength, and stand before every other Christian as symbols of triumph over intimidation and the temptation to turn away from God. And make no mistake, few to none of these inspiring individuals ever lost their lives easily. Look again at that fresco or stained glass. There is a strong chance that, while holding a palm branch in one hand, he or she likely has, in the other, an item unique to the subject, the device of that saint's death. St. Bartholomew holds his own skin, because for his faith, he was skinned alive. St. Clement holds a ship's anchor, because for his faith, he was tied to an anchor and cast into the sea. St. Eulalia holds a crux de cruceta, the X-shaped cross on which she was crucified for her faith as part of her thirteen tortures, one for each year that the thirteen-year-old had lived. For male and female, old and young, slave and free alike, the most lurid fates imaginable have been suffered by Christian martyrs. Now, there is another fact of martyrdom to which we must not blind ourselves. While many Christians live in the West, in countries that, at present, more or less tolerate Christianity, places in which one can look up at the stained glass and believe that martyrdom is a historic institution of a bygone, more brutal day and age, that thought is erroneous. Christian persecution, and make no doubt about it, execution, is on the rise throughout the world, even advancing into old Christendom of Western Europe and America, as it once overtook North Africa, Anatolia, the Balkans, and other Christian centers of the previous two millennia. Perchance, as you broaden your horizons, you will be privileged to meet a believer who has been beaten and burned for her faith in a Taliban-occupied territory, or a Christian who has been eviscerated in the streets of Southeast Asia for sharing the gospel, or a young man who is now disfigured after enduring years of confinement and torture in East Asia for having dared to distribute Bibles. You will hear tales fit for the Roman Colosseum, although they happened last year in West Africa. Gouged eyes, sawn limbs, broken bones, persecution, dismemberment, chased from homes, left in cages to die, and many who did not make it out alive. So be sober now, and do not take your faith lightly. This is not pagan Rome nor the invasion of Moors. These are contemporary horrors, even in countries with modern infrastructure, accessible health care, growing GDPs, to which tourists travel and gawk and marvel at the attractions. But in both the developed and especially in the developing world, belief in Christ is accompanied by terrible suffering. In each and every day, triumphant Christian souls are granted the palm branch of the martyr. Where does this legacy begin? If we travel backwards in time, can we find the very first Jesus follower who was killed for nothing more than that belief? Do we know who the first Christian martyr was? The fates of many early Christ followers, including the twelve disciples, are known from both Christian and secular sources. For example, it is well known that the Apostle Paul died in the year 68 AD. He would have been crucified, 
but his Roman citizenship spared him that horror, and instead, he was beheaded by the order of Roman Emperor Nero. Many scholars place the death of Jesus around 33 AD, and that would mean that Paul's death in 68 was only 35 or so years later. But was Paul the first martyr? No. About four years earlier, in roughly 64 AD, Simon Peter was killed for his faith. He was crucified, but believing himself unworthy of the honor of dying as his friend and Lord Jesus did, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down, and so he was. But church tradition tells that even four years prior to Peter's death at Rome, his brother and fellow disciple Andrew met his martyrdom in the Greek city of Patras. He was crucified on a saltire, which is an X-shaped cross. It has hence been eponymously termed the St. Andrew's Cross, and it could be seen gracing the flag of Scotland, the country of which Andrew is the patron saint. The first of the twelve disciples to die for faith in Christ was James, the brother of John. In 44 AD, barely ten years after Jesus himself was killed, the apostle James was put to death by the sword at the order of King Herod. In fact, other than Judas Iscariot, who hanged himself after the arrest of Jesus, James is the only other of the twelve apostles whose death was early enough to be recorded in the Bible, the brief account of which you can read for yourself in chapter 12 of Acts. Eventually, every disciple but John, the gospel writer, was killed for his faith. But there was another, even earlier. Before nearly 6,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2021, before the Christians at Nag Hammadi in 2010, before the Wingtown Martyrs in 1685 or Arthur Bell in 1643, before St. Cecilia in the 3rd century, before Paul and Peter and Andrew, and before even James, Stephen became the very first Christian martyr. When the church was very much in its infancy, grown just too large for the original twelve to manage all its doings, Stephen and six others were chosen to serve as the hands and feet of the new movement, to carry out the daily distributions of aid to the poor. The prerequisites for these seven was that they were to be of good repute and full of the spirit and of wisdom. Of Stephen himself it was written that he was full of grace and power and that he performed great wonders and signs among the people. But there were also those who hated Stephen and his proclamation of the good news, and because they couldn't dispute him, they had him arrested under specious charges of blasphemy, saying that he spoke against Moses and God. But when Stephen was presented before the high priest to answer these charges, he affirmed the tradition of their fathers, beginning with Abraham and the patriarchs, to Moses and David, and many of the greats who had preceded them. But then he accused the judges before him, and lambasted them, saying, You are a stiff-necked people, and in your hearts and ears you are no better than the pagans. You resist God's spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed even those who announced the coming of their own Savior, the Savior who you betrayed and murdered. You received the law from the hand of angels, and yet you did not keep it. After this harsh polemic, the priests and judges ground their teeth in rage. 
but Stephen refused to let up. He continued, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But this was too much. His accusers were furious and outraged, and immediately they took him outside the city gates and stoned him. And the seventh chapter of Acts records that, Falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And thus, as far as any of us know, Stephen became the first martyr for Christ. Although Stephen was Christ's first martyr, he was not God's first martyr. Who was that person? Who was the very first to die for no other reason than faith in God? Was it a Jewish exile in Babylon? Perhaps a young girl who boldly asserted that her God would liberate her and her people from their captors? Was it a prophet who God commissioned to confront the wayward kings of Israel, to denounce the powers of the world and advocate for the true king who was in heaven? Was it a Jewish infantryman, far from his family, and campaigning to reclaim land that God had promised to his forebears? Was it an Israelite sojourning in Egypt, laboring under harsh taskmasters, who proclaimed that the Egyptian gods were lifeless stone, but that Israel's God was alive and had not forgotten them? In fact, we can keep going back, farther and farther, into the primeval tales of human existence. And if we do, we find that, according to Judeo-Christian tradition, the very first martyr for God was Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, and the brother of Cain. Early on in the first book of the Bible, we hear this tale. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain, who worked the soil, and Abel, who was a shepherd. One day Cain brought, from the fruit of the soil, a gift for God. And Abel too brought, from the firstborn of his flock, a gift for the Lord. And it was that God regarded for Abel and his gift, but not for Cain and his. Cain was exceedingly upset. But the Lord said to him, Cain, why the long face? Why this upset? If you are well-intentioned, then hold your head high. But if you are not, then be vigilant. For at the doorway is sin, a crouching demon. But know that you can rule over him. After this, Abel and Cain were in a field together. And it was that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. When the Lord came and asked Cain, Where is your brother Abel? Cain replied, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper to watch over him? And God told Cain, what have you done? Do you hear it? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the soil. As I read this story, I wonder, what is it that Abel's blood cries out? Abel was killed not for any wrong that he did, but for being a step above someone else. Forsooth, is it not often the case that a person is hated for rising above the standard? It was Cain's idea to make an offering to the Lord. Abel simply joined him. But Abel brought a better gift, one that made Cain look bad by comparison. 
For that, Cain hated Abel, because those who are comfortable in their complacency detest those who are not. Those who strive for excellence set higher standards, and juxtaposed to those who are just skirting by, reveal their inadequacy. Although Cain's offering might have been good enough in isolation, having been placed side by side with Abel's, revealed Cain's half-hearted oblation. But then as now, God is a gracious God, who took aside the man he cherished and told him, Look, Cain, if you mean well, then there is no ill will. I delight in your best, regardless of how that compares to someone else's. Nevertheless, maybe strive a bit harder next time. But hark, Cain, and listen well. For if you do not mean well, if you are trying to give me something worthless, trick me, or be deceptive, then take caution, for those feelings are like a beast stalking you through the grass. Those feelings will destroy you if you do not actively fight them off. From Cain's reaction, we know that he was not well-intentioned. When he and his brother were alone, Cain rose up and killed Abel. We do not know what exchange, if any, preceded the murder. But suppose it happened something like this. Cain accosted Abel and demanded, What's your problem, Abel? You made me look bad in front of God. I'm sorry, Cain, I didn't mean to. I just brought the best thing I could think of. Next time, don't. God would have been fine with what I brought if you hadn't shown up with yours. Cain, what can I give God but the best of my flock? Maybe next time you could bring the best from your crops. No, Abel, what I brought was fine. You need to tone it down. That's absurd. I won't give something less to God because it makes you feel bad. Abel, I'm warning you. Don't do it again. I won't change for you. Then stop giving gifts to God. Cain, this is ridiculous. I'm not the one with the problem here. You need to figure out your offerings. But before Abel could finish his thought, Cain, in his rage, lunged at Abel, threw him to the ground and strangled him until the light faded from his eyes. As he gave up the ghost, Abel became the first in a very long, ever-growing line of men and women to receive the palm branch of the martyr. Abel was killed because he gave his best to God, and another scorned him for it. Is this so uncommon? Consider how everyone thinks that they'll love a sedulous co-worker. That is, until that person makes your half-day of socializing look unprofessional. Until, all of a sudden, hard work, not laziness, becomes the standard to achieve. Just like when the choicest cut of the firstborn of the flock becomes the standard. Then, just any old cull of grain falls short and is revealed for what it really is. A half-hearted, bare-minimum attempt but I still wonder what the blood of Abel cried out. Was it for help, or vengeance, or a call for Cain to meet some horrible fate? Though we can never know with certainty, I think, and I really believe, that the blood of Abel cried out for justice. Not that Cain be brought to justice, the way we think of a criminal being captured and having to stand and answer for a crime, but that the earth would be governed by true justice. In a just world, 
An ideal like equality would not be twisted the way it is. Industry would no longer be treated with contempt. Rather, those who work hard would be rewarded for it. Those who give to others would not be taken from. Those who offer their first fruits to God would not be struck down by those who mock God. If justice ruled the world, dare we say that Abel would never have been killed by the hand of Cain? But the blood of Abel did cry out, and it still cries out. The writer to the Hebrews asserted that, although Abel died, he still speaks, because as long as the blood of the innocent wets the earth upon which their killers stand, the blood cries out. And yet, another voice cries out and joins the chorus with a different lyric. What is the cry of this other innocent victim? Even more acceptable than Abel's sacrifice was Jesus. The perfect offering, he, faultless victim, was sacrificed for the sake of anyone and everyone who would accept it. Of that innocent blood poured out for us, the writer to the Hebrew says this, The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. While I suspect that Abel's blood cries out for justice, I believe that the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. On the cross, he himself cried to God, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I, the blood of the innocent, calls for justice. And while I pray and strive to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth, hoping to one day find myself in a just world, despite such noble sentiments, where would justice truly bring us? Who is there among all of us who has never been guilty of injustice? Who but Jesus has no faults, has committed no wrongs? If the world were perfectly just, unyieldingly just, Jesus alone would escape condemnation, although he cast his lot with you and me, sinners. But being honest with ourselves, we proclaim our own condemnation. This is why the blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness. And this is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Forgive us, Father, for the wrongs we have committed just as we too forgive the wrongs committed against us. You see, justice is lex talionis, an eye for an eye. But Gandhi famously instructed us that an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. Therefore, let us consider that the blood of lambs cries out for justice. From the first martyr Abel to Stephen, and down through to this very day. And it is the cry of even those who do not die for their faith, and even of those who have no faith whatsoever. From wherever they are, the universal cry of the innocent is for justice, and they should cry for justice. But that cry should follow the example of Jesus, and temper its call with cries for forgiveness. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. My name is Ben Leboot, and I encourage you to spend time thinking about today's discussion and prayerfully considering justice, forgiveness, and above all, the need for God. The next episode will be out one fortnight from today. Between now and then, 
I invite you to share this podcast with the people in your life. Subscribe to it on your favorite app. Also, check out storiesofsymmetry.com for blogs, episodes, and more. And give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. Go with God. Go in peace.